0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm at Seth Godin's office today. Road trip. It's a road trip pod, and, um, which may lead you to think that Seth Godin is going to be my guest. Also, the voice, his voice may lead you to think <laughs> that he's going to be my guest, and in fact— I'm not playing a trick on you. Seth Godin is my guest today on the show. Uh, Thanks, Seth. Brian, it's such a privilege. Well, yeah, man, this is what I was going to say. First of all, Seth is the first three-time guest on The Moment. But more than that, I was thinking about this. Other than my coworkers, partners, people I work with on Billions, and my family, you're the person I've spent the most time with over the past year and a half, two years.
1: Wow. Well, the the benefit has been to me, but I think it must also mean that you don't get out as much as
0: you used to. <laughs> well, No, that's, I mean, that's clear. It just so happens that uh, oh, luckily our wives like each other too. So we get to spend... Which is huge, a huge bonus. A, a, a tremendous bonus. It means we get to spend a lot of time together um, hanging out and talking. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about driving up here is that unlike a typical episode of the show, or even when someone comes back because there's a specific agenda, a specific series of things we didn't cover about who they are, why I wanted to have you come back again is because the conversations that we have, both of us go away thinking about them. And then we communicate about them. And they're all about the stuff that we try to talk about on the moment and you talk about in your books and your, and your blogs. And I was hoping that our experiment could be to recreate one of those conversations. Let's, here. Yes, I find that the
1: podcasts I do with you are a symptom of my best work. And I try to recreate it even when I'm not in front of a microphone sitting with you. How are they a symptom? How are you using the word symptom? A symptom because they don't cause my best work. They, my best work has to be in present and then I can evoke it and demonstrate it. Because you are one, you have many skills, but one of your extraordinary skills is that you bring out in the people around you they're honest
0: bestsells. Thank you. That concludes the log rolling portion of. No,
1: I'm not good that at log, a log rolling, rolling
0: portion as you of know, the podcast.
1: I'm really bad at log rolling, as you
0: know. Did Spy invent the
1: term? I don't know. You should have Kurt on the show, and you can ask.
0: Yeah, him. we would have to ask Kurt. I believe. I believe they might mo- they they coined it in its modern in its modern use. I
1: was once at a Senate thing, and to hear the senators do it, that, oh, that that's be. like going
0: to an NBA game
1: to watch dunking. It's like this this whole new level of log rolling. They were like, it was extraordinary.
0: Yeah, writers who listen to the show and who are young and don't know what Spy Magazine is, it, go find some old copies of it. First of all, because they tweak Trump better than anyone ever has. But also because a Brilliant Literary Mind was in, in charge of it uh, and hired incredible people to make it. But it was just incredibly sharp and funny about the time it ex- in which it existed in a way that anyone writing anything can learn something from. So, all right, I was thinking about what I want to talk to you about. And I wanted to start, first of all, I wanted to start in thinking about you have, you've decided to release a compendium of your work, this you know incredible blog that you do. You've decided to release a giant, gorgeous book, and you've done it in a way that people don't usually release books. Can you just talk about that for a second? And then I have a question about it.
1: So the book's called uh, What Does It Sound Like When You Change Your Mind? And it's the best of my blog, my eBooks, and my medium posts from the last four years. This is the second time I've done it. The last one, we made 2,500 copies. Why do I do it? It's certainly not a profitable, cost-efficient thing to do. Uh, it weighs as much as 15 books. It's 800 pages long. It's four-color. Uh, you have to use container ships to get it from the printer to the people. I do it because... A, I love books. Books matter to me, just the format reminds me of so many things that are important. So I don't want my work, my electronic work, to just float away into the ether. I like the idea that it's got a footprint. And the second thing is that I think that books carry with them so much Proustian baggage in the best possible way, that we expect something from a book we don't expect to swipe right or swipe left or just delete it. We expect it to be part of what we're trying to do. That's my hot water kettle, which I thought was going to go off before, but it just went off now. It comes on randomly. Anyway, um, I think a book can change us. I think a book opens the door for a different kind of thinking. And I think if you have a book that changes you and you hand it to someone else, it can change them. And that's a really powerful tool because I'm in the change business.
0: I've also heard you talk about the pain associated with books, with traditional publishing models, with pouring one's heart into into books only to have the distribution chain let you down or the fact of people not buying uh, hard copy books let you down. And I think it... It gets at the heart of, of something that there are a couple ways one can react to it. So, you announced you weren't going to write any more books at one point. And so, that's one way. And then another way is to go, in fact, what I'm going to do is write the, like, put out the biggest, most impractical book ever. It's a, in a wonderfully perverse reaction to deciding that in certain ways books are dead. Yeah, perverse is, is a great way to put it. Here's the deal the 500 year old
1: tradition of book publishers and bookstores was a magical parenthesis in time that Gutenberg caused. That there was an industry that supported individuals who wanted to do this. There was a retail environment where you could go and say, I am here to buy a thing that will change me. That doesn't exist as much as it used to. But one of the underpinnings of commercial printing is infinity. That what you need to do, if you want to make it as a commercial publisher, is you need Catcher in the Rye. You need Brene Brown. You need a book that sells and sells and sells and sells. Well, I'm very focused on making sure that I'm in sync with my partners and not disappointing them. So the problem is that whenever you bring a book to a publisher, inevitably, there's going to be the moment of disappointment when it runs out of steam. Sure. Right? And for oh, now there's a fire in town. This is
0: great. It's we fine. Were, no, you're making a really right. interesting point, though. So yeah. whenever you hand something, because this goes right at the heart of anyone who creates anything. So most is, things. Okay. There are certain t- topics
1: where it's not true. So if you're a restaurant tour and there's 10 seats at the ta- at the
0: bar and there's only 10 covers, you can be full. You can't serve any more people. Well, you're disappointed, but your disappointment comes somewhat can can occur somewhere else down the chain. The peaches didn't come in the right way. The sous chef didn't notice not it. Not buying it. Totally
1: different kind of disappointment. That one of the things that happens, for example, in the food business, and I know you pay attention to this, is the culture says, oh, great, you're successful. Now you need to open another restaurant. Well, by definition, now you have a building that you're not in. So now you're no longer cooking food for the people. You're implementing that. And now you have to get bigger and then you have to go public, blah, blah, blah. When, in fact, that's none of the reasons you went into the business in the first place. So for me, with this big book, I'm only printing 6,500 I'm not printing anymore. I'm done.
0: So now- 6,500 copies of this book. That's that's all there are.
1: And so now I don't have to say, where can I sell this? Where can I promote this? How can I get Brian to put me on his podcast? Because they're all going to sell. I don't have to worry about it. It's like I made an artifact. I'm sharing the artifact with people who are paying attention. I hope that the artifact will be seen as the gift I meant it to be. And then I'm going to go do the next thing. And I can't engage a commercial publisher in that partnership because the commercial publisher needs to go to their customer, who's not the reader, but the bookstore, get them all excited. But they're all bleeding every day anyway. And then the bookstore plus the media people have to get the world excited. And all of that work I discovered gives me no joy.
0: And so i that's the work I don't want to do. But, but I guess I'm saying well, I understand that. And I understand the reasons that this particular book makes sense to you. But I guess part of what I'm talking about is that I think we all – who are engaged in trying to create something that represents the best of ourselves at times manufacture disappointment. Yes. And so a chef, like I can go with David Chang to one of his restaurants who's been on the podcast and talked about this. And even with all the happy faces that he does get, if the peach I'm talking about isn't exactly right. And he notices it because he walked into his joint and it's on the third table from the let one person that can stay with him for, that disappointment could make him go, it's not fucking worth it to have restaurants. That's his fuel, right? But I'm
1: making a distinction that I think is relevant to most people who are listening, which is social media is also based on infinity. So if you look at how many Facebook shares you've got, if you look at how many Twitter followers you have, you have just enrolled in exactly the wrong dialogue with yourself. That the thing about the peach is, the reason I came to the restaurant is to eat the peach. But I didn't read your blog post or your tweet so that other people would read it. So they're two different things, right? Right. So what I stopped doing a few years ago, I don't read my Amazon reviews. I don't look at my Google Analytics. I have no idea whether my subscriber base is going up or down. I don't know what the buzz is about something I did on Facebook because none of those things
0: helped me do better work. It's interesting. On the drive up here, I was thinking about the word certainty for some reason. And I Uh wanted to ask you about certainty because... There's this idea that we have to throw ourselves, I think, into uncertainty to create stuff, which can lead to disappointment if, depending on the expectations that we have. Right. Yet, you're creating a kind of certainty, uh, areas that you know you won't find disappointment because you choose not to engage in those areas.
1: Well, I guess, you know, I also don't know if there's suffering on Alpha Centauri's planets, right? There might be. You've made a choice. I'm unaware. And being unaware is different than certainty. So, I w- But let's dive into certainty, because I think that that's yeah. at the heart of this creativity thing. Bob Dylan wrote some of the most important songs of all time, usually in 15 minutes each. Leonard Cohen, as you and I were talking about the other day, wrote Hallelujah in six, eight years. What's the difference, right? Is it that Bob Dylan has a different clock speed, or is it that a creator who's stuck is stuck because they are seeking certainty that cannot be found that they are in their own head
0: focus grouping it imagining it that's failure well, it's that's the imaginary in their own it's, I think it's that's important right. for you to repeat that in their own head focus grouping it they're not that's actually right. focus grouping exactly. it because they'd have to finish the work in order to focus group exactly. it exactly you're saying that it is, I mean, it's the thing Julia Cameron talks about. It's the thing that i uh, you know, that, that haunted me when I, I was younger and that I still have to defeat every morning when I try to do the good work. You're talking about turning off the internal sensors and, and the, the inventions of judgment. And why do we invent judgment? We invent judgment for the same reason that a chef
1: is angry at a peach. And the reason is we think it's fuel, but it's not fuel. It's sabotage. So half of Miles Davis's albums are below average and only two or three of them are albums for the ages.
0: But if he had waited for the album of the age to show up, then we never would have heard it. But it's really hard in a world of in a in a in a culture of swift judgment, right? There's this long judgment that happens that has to do with what's canonical or not. There's this judgment that can happen over time if I pass a book to you and you pass it to somebody else, pre-canonical, but still sort of like viral, uh, a kind of viral. But there's an immediate snapping shut now of possibility. Uh, Completely untrue. That is a in, fiction. But it's a what it, figment of the... Uh, but it's of the collective imagination. Of many people's imagination. That's what I'm talking but about. But in fact...
1: yeah. You know, it used to be there were only 12 book editors in New York City, and if you didn't get them, you weren't going to make it as a literary author. It used to be that the salons in Paris 100 years ago, if you failed there, there was going to be this huge glitch. Now it's just oozing through every corner and angle. So, so when Eric Raymond wrote The Cathedral and the Bazaar 15 years ago, that sort of opened the door to what became Wikipedia and everything else, Almost no one read it at the beginning, and almost everyone who read it at the beginning didn't get it. When Kevin Kelly launched one of his books 15 years ago that predicted the entire future of the internet, it wasn't a bestseller. I read it. Almost no one else did. What an incredible unfair advantage I had. He gave me a roadmap, right? right. Yeah. If Kevin was waiting for applause, he would have never done what he's done in his magnificent career. My point is, the internet is filled with hate if you look for it, if you measure it. But it is the best publishing platform ever invented
0: for someone who wants to keep publishing. So how do you train yourself? You're an incredibly disciplined person. You know, anyone who knows you well knows that. How does one train oneself, though, to put on the kind of blinders you're talking about? Because one thing I noticed, we got really lucky on uh, our our TV show um, in that most of the critics liked it. And People like it. But I've noticed that their critics now in all these fields communicate with each other. As you know, Twitter is sure. separated now into there's political Twitter, there's television Twitter, there's film Twitter, not officially, but all of these people self define. Right. You define many people, uh, uh, sort of thought leaders, in quotes, define themselves uh, and define their affinity group within the social media world. And so You can see how if these people are all, it used to be that the critics were really forming at first their own opinion. They had to, they were at their pay. They they may have been manipulated and all that stuff, right? It may not have been pure, pure. It was hard for them to sync up in real time. Hard to know ahead of time what the collective opinion was going to be. Correct. That's just not the case anymore. If you're engaging, how do you train yourself not to engage? So many different ways to go at this. Let me start
1: with this. It's easy to not understand or embrace the idea of enrollment, but I want to take it apart. Education. Education can no longer be done to people. It has to be done with them. That a kid is now capable of sitting through almost any class and not getting it, because if they don't want to get it, they're not going to get it. But if you're into baseball cards or into Magic the Gathering or into Game of Thrones, because you're into it, because you're enrolled in this journey, it's done with
0: you. And you eagerly suck it all up. Like the Harvey Milk idea, let me enlist you, in a way. Enlist you in the journey, not tell you, but bring you along. That's right. And so,
1: if you are a creator and you have followers who are enrolled in where you are going, the critics do not matter at all. And that goal of finding enrollment, you succeed at that by making a different kind of work than chasing what the critics are into right now. And so if we look at how could Star Wars possibly have made it through the valley of bad movies and then come out at the other end with a billion-dollar hit, well, because through the valley, the people who were enrolled in where Star Wars was supposed to go stuck with it, right? At the beginning, you have to make the first movie in a way that gets strangers to say, yeah, you're going where I want to go. Do you think
0: the most common mistake, though, is aiming for where you think the critics are going to be? Or do you think the common mistake is becoming paralyzed because you're afraid of where it's going to be because I, right, I think the it's same. the same well they're 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 the same only one produces one at least produces some result right. and the other produces no result and, and I think they're sli- they're, yes, s- they're they're slightly different
1: here's what happens it always begins with paralysis and yes. then the only way out the only way out is say, well wait I found the, the needle Let's thread this thing, because that will lead us to where we want to go. And if we can't find that needle, then, we, then we're
0: stuck. And it always begins with paralysis for pretty much right. all of us, by the way. Yeah. Almost all of us. That's right. Even the people who are working every day. Right. Producing, like, uh, real content that have an audience. Correct. Face that paralysis. So we begin with the question, who is it for? And if you can't tell me
1: who it's for then you either have to say, it's only for me and not care at all about commercial success, or you have to be able to work yourself forward to say, it's for those people, it's not for these people. So if you're going to a Dylan concert yelling, lay, lady, lay, play it just like it's on the record, Bob says to himself, it's not for you. And you're going to leave that concert disappointed, fine with him. And that's got to be what we do in a world where anyone can publish, therefore anyone will publish. The only way to get your fair share or more of attention is to have enrollment. But it leads to this problem of freedom, which leads to this myth of writer's block. There's no such thing as writer's block, right? Writer's block is merely the combination of two things. One, bad habits, combined with two, fear of what someone else who's not on the journey is going to say to you. When those two things combine in your head... It's easier to be paralyzed. It's easier to do nothing. And so, my suggestion is, and I mentioned this to you the other day, you know, mise en place is its own reward. Mise en place is when the chef lines up all the ingredients pre cut, ready to go, so that when the things are fired up, you just cook. Well, my friend Isaac Asimov, who published 400 books before he died, Isaac got up every single morning. Uh, he used to live near the Lincoln Center. He sat in front of a manual typewriter, and he typed for five hours. And if he didn't have anything to say, he still typed. And that's the answer to having enough good ideas. You have to have bad ideas. Yeah, Eddie
0: Burns, who was a, a podcast guest about a year and a half ago, who's just made ton- many, many movies of all different size. It was a good podcast. Yeah, he well, he talks about he's able to four hours, of, no matter what he's typing for four hours, and he doesn't care about the quality till later, right. tomorrow. The next exactly. afternoon, and um, and if people want to know about uh, mise en place, uh, Bill Buford's book Heat is excellent because he has to man that station at some point, right? And he really talks about it. Says uh, he got to be in Batali's kitchen, and it's very. It it sort of gets into that, and Gabrielle Hamilton's book does too. But uh, it's a great metaphor. Um, even though I hate to disagree with uh, with you, ever. I love it when you disagree with me. It makes my thinking better. Well, because I I don't know what we gain by saying there's no writers block you know it's um it's like in Chuck Klosterman's book he talks about the new book he, you know what if we're wrong or i think that's what it's called i may be wrong something like that he talks about some of this stuff he talks about the canon and about how wrong we're going to be about mm-hmm. whatever we think is going to be canonized right. and one of the things he talks about is science we we now know that gravity we know that there's this thing called gravity but what he, the question he asks is and he talks some Science guys, is you know, well, what if gravity is just actually not its own thing, but the result of something we don't know about, something spinning somewhere that we haven't found yet, right? And gravity is merely the product of that. Well, wouldn't that change our entire understanding? But that doesn't mean that the force of gravity is any less potent on us now, okay? So, writers to me, we can call it something else, but I feel like, except I know when I was somebody who couldn't write till I was 30. I had to get to a place of understanding. It helped me to define it as being blocked, because once I knew, oh, there's a block, I was able to think about removing the block. So let me try to tease out the semantics a little bit. When we say, I have writer's
1: block, it's a little like saying, I have a cold, or I have a wart, or I have cancer. These are things that happen to us. If you do an Ngram search in uh, Google, which lets you track words that have appeared, the word, the phrase writer's block did not occur in American literature until the 1930s and 40s. It wasn't a thing. It just wasn't a thing. There wasn't a need for a word for, I need to write for a living and I'm unable to write. I'm stuck. That didn't happen. Because they were either writers or not writers. Because actually, almost no one wrote for a living. Right. You wrote because you wanted to write. Yeah. And if you weren't writing... You, I'm not knitting either, but no one gets knitters block. No one gets plumbers block. No one gets jugglers block. Well, because block. we're talking
0: about an inchoate feeling, though. What? I, what? How I would define this feeling, and I think it's important because of the letters we both get from people who feel, right. we are feeling this, right? It's important to dive in, into mm-hmm. it. I think it's like central to a lot of people's existence, this question of what it means to not be able to do what I believe I'm meant to do, right? I have a feeling inside me. It feels unexpressed either in painting or sculpture or cooking or writing. It's a feeling. I want to try to manifest it. And something I feel a pressure stopping me from manifesting it. And I end up feeling disappointed in myself. So not only do I not express the thing, but I then have let myself down. And so to me, I think, well, okay, let's diagnose it. Let's say, you know, um, it's, you're, uh, in it having a temporary block. There are tools that we can find that can help you barrel through and get to the other side. Where's that? Where's well, the fault in my okay. thinking?
1: The fault is, first of all, there's no other side. But secondly, well, uh, I'm going to lead yeah. to that. So here's the deal. The people who say they have writer's block, show me all your bad writing. Show me the 10 novels you've written while you've been stuck. Because... Do you have a typing problem, or do you have a problem of self-judgment that's keeping you from showing me a thing that you think is good enough? Yeah, often it's the inner critic self-judgment. So you don't actually have writer's block. What you have is the habit and the desire to be a stuck writer, that there's a lot of safety in being a stuck writer. You have chosen to be a stuck writer. You would rather be a stuck writer than a writer who is writing stuff you're not proud of. And what I'm arguing is, let's begin by saying, I am writing work I am not proud of. I would like it to be better. But please don't tell me you have writer's block, because I know you know how to type. I know you know how to tell jokes that aren't funny on your way to telling jokes that are it's funny. It's interesting.
0: Have you? It's like, um, but in a way, I feel like it, it, it's like uh, you're saying there's no colorblindness. No, I'm not. It's the opposite of Because, this. no, because of having, because I lived this, right. I couldn't have shown you my bad work, right? I couldn't have shown you the bad work at 30. I could have only shown you no work and the deep knowledge that somewhere in me was a writer. But you loved in that moment, part of you liked the fact
1: that you could say to yourself because I didn't know you then, but you could certainly say to yourself, I have gems inside of me and I just am having trouble expressing them. That's way more comforting than saying I'm making dreck.
0: Yeah. Day but after there's day. a there's a notion even even it wasn't even that I thought, yeah, that thought shows up but the dominant thought is just a, "I'm worthless." I'm saying the dominant thought yeah, is, and that and this that has its own charms. They're related. That has it. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of self-loathing, self-loathing has. But I guess what I want to know is, what's the value? Walk walk us through. Really, what is the value in if you're feeling that way? What is the value in the language change? Because. Because what's the tool or what's the technique or what's the – like for me, it's recommending morning pages to people because that gets you flowing. Sure. It gets some words coming out, which then allows you to – I have found it somehow gets the subconscious out of the way and allows you to do the work. For me, it was helpful to think of it as a way to transcend the – uh, Riders block. It helped me once I was able to yeah. because for a long time I couldn't use the word. I didn't know I wanted. I would have said, I just feel, my what heart. I feel is there's some. I couldn't have said, there's something I'm not doing that I'm meant to do. That I'm supposed to do. I feel called to a kind of expression that I can't manifest. Let's think hard about almost any other profession
1: where we expect the professional to be good at it the first time. from, me, from like, the start. I need my appendix out. Study, 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 and when you're I'm ready... a blocked surgeon.
0: Well, yeah. I'm a, I would, but I'm a blocked surgeon. Right. So what we yeah. want
1: is a surgeon who's done a thousand appendixes before they take us on. Sure. And what we know is that the act of painting or writing or leading a, a team or describing a vision in politics are all the act of practice. And there's nothing more comforting than being able to say to people at a cocktail party, I'm working on a novel. Really? What's it about? I can't tell you. This is perfect. It's safe. It's respected. You win. Right? The opposite. The worst thing is I slaved for two years on my novel. It was rejected. I self-published it. It was savaged in the New York Times. That's like death. Right? So which is better? It's better to say, I can't tell you, but I'm working on it. So my answer is no. I'd rather have you act like a surgeon or a gardener or a productive painter. Keep doing this work. You can do it under a pseudonym if you want. Blog every day. Do the morning pages. Record a demo and put it on iTunes or Spotify every single day. And now you can come to me and say, my work's not very good. (laughs) That's a much better conversation than I have writer's block.
0: Yeah, because you're talking about people wearing this stuff as a badge. That's right. And so taking, owning that that you're the danger is owning the identity. Because uh, if I am a blocked writer, I'm now, I'm really defining it in a way that becomes hard. That's right. Now you have to undo two things. Right, you have to undo not your... only the practice of not doing work, exactly. but the
1: label you've affixed to yourself. That's right. Is what you have to say. Is... I was wrong. I don't have writer's block
0: anymore. And saying I was wrong is really difficult. Again, treating this like if we were at dinner. Uh, the only thing I'll, I'll say is, like, the reason working there are working writers who won't tell you what they're working on because. Oh, for sure. They, no, because to do it, um. I won't do it. No, because to do it will stop them from, they know that actually right. that's another form. Because I don't want people to think if you're not, that's another form of sabotage. Oh, right. Hemingway famously taught, um, really one of his, gr- you know, his book on writing is still to me that and Stephen King's are the two best books on writing. Uh, and Hemingway's wasn't, someone just collected everything he ever wrote and said about it. It's called Hemingway on Writing. It's great and on writing by Stephen, by Stephen King, those. But. There is this thing of talking out your novel. That's which, right. Which is another way to give yourself permission not to write. Horribleness. The novel. Totally. I totally agree with that. Yeah. So, but uh, you, you're talking about working writers for sure. We need to keep our mouths shut. Yes. Yeah, yes. That's why I mean. even. But even if you want to do it, the important thing isn't to talk about it. It isn't what you say. In truth, what I would say is don't go to the cocktail parties. Right. I mean, I. Ne- I mean, what I, you know, very few writers I know are actually living that Wodehouse kind of a like that. Right. But, but it's I, interesting in the Hemingway piece you sent me. I think over time... Which was in The New Yorker by Lillian Ross from
1: 1960. He started acting a role. Sure. Because it helped his writing. That the person who is Hemingway in the world has an easier time writing Hemingway books than some accountant who in his spare time is a writer. So by acting this role,
0: he was doing the opposite of what you and I are talking about. Yeah, well, there's times to say, um, for sure to say, I'm a writer. But even in that piece, he won't give details of what he's writing. There's a time to say, I'm an artist, I'm a writer, I'm a painter... And yes, that is a more powerful thing to say than I'm um, someone who who can't produce work. But is the first so going back to enrollment, is the is the first person you have to enroll yourse- yourself of somehow course. in this vision? Yes, so you, so you enroll yourself.
1: You enroll yourself in saying, "I know where I am. I know what my thinking is like. I would like to have this kind of thinking. I would like to have this kind of position in this conversation." And it's important for me. I know most of the people who are listening are in
0: the quote creative arts. But the fact is... There's people in yeah, the, all sorts of walks of life who want to be the most creative version of themselves right. in whatever their job so is. So if you're going to go to a staff meeting on Friday,
1: why are you acting in the staff meeting like someone who has writer's block? The fact is that you can lead in a staff meeting, that you can lead in a sales call, that these are all places we get to put on the cape, get to adopt a posture, find people who are enrolled in the journey we want to go in. So you know, if, if I'm trying to manage somebody... And I need to spend a lot of time thinking about how to talk to them about something that didn't work, how to talk to them. about I failed months ago, right? That the goal is at the beginning to say, let's go on this journey together. Here's how it works. Every three days, I'm going to ask you how you're doing. Every three days, you're going to tell me how you're doing. And we're going to have this brutal honesty about the work, not about whether we like each other, about the work. So there's not this fear and this anxiety, did I screw this up? It's, oh, no, you picked up the wrong hammer. This is the hammer we pick up when we do this. And there's no overhead here because you and I are enrolled in both getting better at this it's, together. It's really
0: interesting. So, okay, you and I are both uh, working. We, we both are, are, are working writers, working create people who do this. And we both come to sort of slightly different answers about the value of self-definition. Mm-hmm. How, so the real question is, how do you think you go, you go on the journey to figure out which are your own most empowered, right? Because it really doesn't matter whether you think it's better to call it X or I think it's better to call it Y. What matters is that the listener, that somebody else knows which thing is more empowering to them, right? For me, it was important to actually figure out this feeling I'm feeling is the desire to write. Mm-hmm. I'm blocked, a problem. I like solving that kind of problem. How do I sol- Let me go on right. a search for solving sure. that problem. It works I'm saying you. that math Led me to Julie Cameron, Tony Robbins, yeah. a journey, you eventually, like the journey, right? And for you, it was, um, I just want, I'm this pragmatic, yeah. like I want, I want to start producing pages. What, what I call this doesn't matter. So, how do you think somebody goes on that exploration for themselves? If it's working, I have no standing.
1: Right, it worked for you,
0: but when it's not, I'm saying right. someone who's so, at home and it's not so, working. How do they? So start? my message
1: when I show up and say there's no such thing as writer's block, I'm hoping that all the people who have been walking around saying they have this illness called writer's block will go, "What the hell are you talking about?" And maybe a few of them will adopt a different posture. Yeah. that's how I'm. That's the you know people who don't think they have writer's block. I've added no value today. right? Sure. So, but let they me talk about feedback for a minute. You go. So yeah. Nikki Papadopoulos. That's her real name. She's awesome. Uh, Is my editor when I do a book at Penguin Portfolio. And Nikki delivers an extraordinary gift. And that extraordinary gift is that if you hand her a manuscript, she says, I'm enrolled in where you're going. That's what editors have to be good at. And then she gives you nothing but page after page after page of criticism. And you know what the right answer is? Thank you. Yes. When someone who is enrolled in your journey gives you criticism, the answer is thank you. Not, uh, or what are you talking about? It's thank you. What a gift that is. Now, when someone who's not on the journey with you gives you criticism, you can say thank you to make them go away, but they don't exist in your world. The only people who exist are people that you're willing to invite along for the journey who are giving you this priceless gift of their attention plus a hint as to what would make it so that your work is even better for you. Go that.
0: further. But, and when you say she's, uh, the first thing she does is like communicate that she's enrolled in what you're doing. M- that means seize the ultimate result. You want the same, like go, what is, define that so that we understand what you mean when, like, cause a lot of people would read it and go, oh yeah, I get, I get what you're, here's how I do it. How do you think you, what's that first stage um, of decision that you have to make? Does this person get it or don't they get it? Okay. So
1: what does it mean to be a curator at a museum or an editor at a book house? It's to adopt a mindset and a posture that isn't your personal one, but that you have enough empathy to imagine a certain kind of gallery viewer would have, or a certain kind of reader would have. So Nikki is probably never going to start her own company, but she can read a book by someone, I don't like books like that, but she can read a book by someone, How to Start Your Own Company, and she can say, wow, if I was the kind of person that was going to start my own company, this is exactly the way I'd want the journey to go. Whereas most people say, oh, well, I wasn't going to start. I used to, when I was building my first internet company, I was hiring a lot of people. And so job interviews didn't last very long. And in my job interview, notoriously, I asked only one question. And the question was, how many gas stations are there in the United States? Now, this is before search engines. How many gas stations are there in the United States? And then I would add, it's not because I want to know the answer. It's because the process of how we answer a question we don't know the answer to is important to me. I asked the question maybe 400 times. And there was a huge correlation between people who could handle it and people who I liked working with. Twice, people said, I don't have a car, and left the meeting. That's fantastic. And it, it sits in my head because it's so irrelevant that you don't have a car, but it shows such a lack of empathy that basically you're saying, because as a 30-year-old who doesn't have a car, I am so uninterested in the journey that you're about to go on hypothetically, intellectually, that
0: I don't even want to play a game with you for three minutes. Bye. It might mean that they know they just want to be a political spokesperson so they could say, I don't deal with hypotheticals. you've helped them, you've actually, they immediately sitting there realize they're calling. You're thinking of it from your prism. From their thing, they were like, ah, fine. It was a eureka moment. I had to, they had to leave instantly. And that's why it's such a great question
1: because it's about establishing the journey we are each trying to go on. I was trying to hire people who could confidently answer questions where the answer was unknown and they were
0: looking for a job where they were going to be told what to do. Right, you were looking for someone to say, "Wow, this is fun. This is a fun question."
1: Yeah, let's figure out. Let's that.
0: figure it out. And if, and if someone said, "Well, there are fifty states,"
1: then they lost seven points. Sure, because then they don't understand math, and we're in big trouble already. But it was a really fat. And I meet people.
0: 10, I would have said, "How weeks. many states are there?" That's right. I would have started. <laughs> right, how so we count? How, how we many go? states are there? Yeah, what are we dealing with? Because that's how bad I am at math uh, and uh, geography. I, I wouldn't have known. So earlier in, in related to this, you said, um, related to this question of enrollment and of who the, who you're writing for, you said, you know, you have to figure out who you're writing for and if it's just you. And this ties in the podcast that'll be up next after yours is with Will Toledo, who is the lead singer songwriter. He is this band. That's my current favorite band car seat headrest. And he became he made the sort of defining record of this year, I think, at 23, and will proudly say that he sort of calculated and planned every part of it. Mm-hmm. He's not saying there was a sense of abandon. Sure, He's, he sat. Good and, for him. He he. When he gets an idea, he really thinks about the idea. He really thinks about what he wants to say, why he wants to say it and the best delivery system for that. And I said, and who's your audience? And he said, it's really someone a lot like me, your answer. yeah. I'm really someone who's, and he said, someone who studied art, someone who understands various forms of art, why people make art, the history of this stuff, uh, the history of this kind of record. That's right. All that stuff is, so that's who I am. So I'm going to make the ultimate record I wish I could have. And I said, how did you know if you were crazy? And he's like, well, you never know. But to be a professional at 23 like that, good for him. Yeah. Well, that's why the record is incredible. And I mean, I've never had anyone that young on the show because normally it's people of this great sure. years long accomplishment who I'm interested in talking to, but the work feels like the work of a master and he's young. And I'm, so I was really interested in it's, it's, there's this fine line. Like, so he's completely not self indulgent artist. He's the opposite of a self indulgent artist, even though he said his audience is him. Right. right. So I know you've thought about this a lot. Yeah. So can you tease that out for me?
1: So here's the, here's the, uh, marketing conundrum when it meets creativity. Let's say you want your creativity to actually find a market. The wrong question is, what is this a copy of? The right question is, what does this remind you of? Because everything that has a clear path to commercial success is in a genre. Not generic, but in a genre. And Sean Coyne has written beautifully about this. But basically, there are tropes and conventions and rules of the genre. The genre is called a genre because there are people enrolled in where that genre goes. So you can push the edges in a few directions, but if you just write something that's completely out of all of it, your path to commercial success is limited. So if I look at something like Billions, right, which is this beautifully crafted, resonant show of its moment, it's clearly also of a genre. And your understanding, hard earned over decades, of the rules and the processes. Are critical. So the reason people take screenwriting courses, if they do it for the right reason, is to understand what the principles and guardrails of the genre are. The wrong reason is to learn to be a copyist. The right reason is to say, what does this remind you of?
0: So Dune. I mean, I I never start with that. I mean, and in fact, you know. um, But you do, you just don't realize. I'm saying for me, because I don't think there are quality, I would just say, yes. The platonic ideal of the screenwriting class, I've never been against. What I'm against is the screenwriting class as it exists. That's right, because that's a copying class. what exists doesn't serve anybody, but the um, – yeah, sure. That's why I think the curriculum is one that I think we have to take our own screenwriting class, which is watching stuff, reading stuff, thinking about that stuff. Learning to see. Learning to see what – how drama works and why drama works or why comedy works.
1: But on Planet 10, where John Big Boutet lives and stuff – screenplays don't look like they look here. We have a screenplay convention that's a 100 years old. It evolved over time. You need to learn to see before you can learn to be a creative player in it that this guy from the group, I forgot his name, from oh, next week. Yeah, uh, Will Toledo. From Will, Headrest. what a great name. Will learn to listen, right? So he understands why a Stevie Wonder song works. He 100%. understands why a rap song works. And by learning to listen... He can bring his own creative thing. Now, if you don't need commercial success, you can throw all this out the window and maybe you'll get lucky and get
0: it. Right? So Goya completely threw out all conventions. But yes, but but, yes, right. But I would say um, that like, I always try to tell people who want to be screenwriters, calculate less. And the reason I say calculate less is because they are trying to game it all the time. And, So, I say calculate less, and it's the thing that I've said that's probably been the most resonant, and people later who've written stuff have uh, really appreciated it. Because, in fact, if you live now and have watched movies and television your whole life, you know. That's right. You already know enough about what those genres are, what the conventions are. I never took a screenwriting class, but you know what I did? I watched thousands of movies and thought about them. Right. So,
1: you're... We're not disagreeing no, too we're not. much
0: here, but I want to let yeah, me go. try to put a different spin on it.
1: The word calculate implies a certain kind of trading. Yes. That is different than, like, people send me books all the time, and 95% of them are self published, unreadable, personal things that aren't going to work. And the reason they're not going to work is it's not that they ignored the guardrails, they just didn't see them. And so, yes, when you're driving down the highway, you shouldn't be calculating how to game the highway, but you also need to know what the double yellow line is for. Sure. And so you figured it out the best way by being a student and a fan, right? And what I did was I went to a bookstore every Sunday for 10 years, every single Sunday to the business section. I knew every single book in that section. When a new book showed up, I noticed it. And if it was anything in my area, I read it either on the spot or I bought it, and I figured out what was going on. And that's why the first year I was in book publishing, I got 850 rejections in a row, because I didn't know where the double yellow line was. And the books I wanted to sell, How to Hypnotize Your Friends and Act Like Chickens, it's a book I would have bought. But it wasn't a book an editor would be proud to acquire. It wasn't a book a bookstore would be proud to sell. And because I needed to work my way through a system to have commercial success, I got to know, right? But once I learned the voice, then I could put my own voice on it without calculating, but knowing I was on a platform
0: with a microphone that was functioning. Yeah, I mean, what's most valuable about this is, um, of course, you're right, and my story is more of an exception in certain ways. I mean, you know, my first screenplay is the one that changed my life. David had written a couple before; we're partners, but we wrote that screenplay. It was the first thing that I ever finished, and it did it itself got rejected by supposed experts, and then it became a movie, sure. an important movie. That's right. The experts were wrong about it. So the lessons I took from that are 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 that now we both apply the same kind of rigor. You know, the and lack of self-indulgence in creating the thing, meaning looking at it with discipline, um, with awareness, knowing what the target is. But and I know when you create, you create such original work and your whole all your books are about um, within this stuff, finding the truest voice you can that isn't like all the other voices so that it can stand right. out. And you find whether it's enrollment or it's tribes, it's about finding your your group, your people by creating work that they're going to gravitate to. But I, I think that the that there are a bunch of different paths to get to that. Oh answer. yeah. And the experts are almost always wrong. Yes. Except when they're not wrong.
1: But the thing is that the experts who didn't love rounders were missing the key thing, which is that you would touch something in the zeitgeist that they didn't see. Yes. And you saw. The other thing is, it wasn't your first screenplay. You'd been thinking about it, not necessarily typing about it, for a long, long time. And the eighteen-year-old Brian couldn't have done anything close to that. (laughs) No, never, never in a million years. Yeah, you know, not for another twelve years. I wrote "Unleashing the Idea Virus" in thirteen days. Right. I sat down. I typed as fast as I could. But I didn't write it in thirteen days. It took me a year. But for 51 weeks, I thought I was stuck and done, and I was depressed, and I was sitting in a dark room. I didn't know I was writing a book the whole time,
0: but I was. Oh, you just, sorry, the incredible value, what you just said earlier about Dylan in the 15 minutes, really what you and I are talking about, and it's something we've talked about before and you talk about, is the difference between professional and amateur. It's like That's professionalizing right. your habits exactly. and professionalizing your approach. And so professionals can decide on different tools, but they recognize there are tools. Right. And- so Dylan, yes, the the story about Dylan is the 15 minute songs, and yes, of course he did write some. There's that amazing moment in "Don't Look Back" when Joan Baez is playing a song and Bob is typing quickly at the uh, at the the manual typewriter, writing. I think he's writing. Uh, I'm trying to remember which song he's writing. It's the one he then plays, Donovan. But uh, oh, it's all over now, Baby Blue, maybe. But um, but the value, the incredible value in the big Dylan box sets that have been released over the past couple of years. Is the iterations of the songs. Yep. That in fact he did everything we're both talking about. That's right. Which was so the burst of inspiration without any calculation, right? He's gonna he had an, an idea, he saw the world a certain way, and he would blast it out. Right. But while the record in the process of manifesting it, yes. He did version after version after version That's after right. version. Sometimes he didn't have to. Sometimes he could walk in and the thing... But even like a Rolling Stone was recorded a bunch of times. Yeah, and until, if Al Cooper hadn't played the organ, right, it wouldn't have worked Until that moment, a guy wasn't a, an organist, yep. until who was a guitar player primarily, who became the most important or, like uh, Hammond organ player of his time. Uh, yes, if he hadn't walked in and hadn't decided to go play that organ, uh, sneak in the back and play it, the, the whole rock history would be different. But also... You know, there's this amazing book about the making of the Blood the, on the Tracks album, and I forget the name of it, but Jason, our, our producer, will find it and put it in the show notes. Uh, Dylan recorded Blood on the Tracks twice, the whole album, and once in Minneapolis and once in New York, maybe once in Tennessee. But half of it in New York, like um, the first time was New York, Minneapolis, and I think then finally it was in Tennessee. But the specifics don't matter that. But he heard something in his head that he couldn't get. Yeah. And then he had to go find it. Right. Kept that's it. the only
1: thing that's interesting about anything we do. Is what? That there's this thing we're questing for, that it doesn't come to us fully formed. We're on a journey, right? Now, the generous among us are on a journey because we think we're going to help other people get something. Some of us are on a journey just because we want to see it when it's done, right? The person who needs to keep the paintings in their attic. But the journey, the process, step by step, so it's been corrupted by the copyright regime and the complexes of media that will say, and you'll get money. But can we leave that out for a minute?
0: Because it's the journey that makes someone do it even after they have money. But in the, yes, but I'm so glad you just came back to this because, you know, my subconscious spit out this certainty word at the beginning of this. Because being lost in the creation is fucking painful a lot of the time. The uncertainty when you're halfway... You're not a blocked person. You're someone who does it. Still, it's incredible. How do you keep yourself? So, okay, you can, you can mitigate the uncertainty of the markets by deciding you're going to self-publish. You're not going to play their game. You have a huge following. You're going to do your blog. You're not going to look. But you still have to produce a blog post every day because you've told yourself and us you're going to do that. When you are lost, like I know, I can look back on season one of the show of Billions and I can remember... Yeah, I still see all the imperfections in all the episodes. I'm so happy everyone loves it. I can see the things where it was like, oh, I spackled that. You know, Dave and I spackled that together. One of our writers figured out how to put the gum on, like whatever that all is, right? But the times that I wander around really feeling still like it's impossible. Right. Are so painful that you sometimes just want to go, well, fuck this. How do you avoid that? Well, I hope you will never try to
1: avoid that. I won't. Let's say there was this job where it's really, really cold. You have to wear lots and lots of clothes. And you have a boss who stands in front of you and says, okay, bend your knees here. Push against this thing here. get snow in your face here. Oh, today's the day we're going to break your ankle. And every day that was your job. It would, OSHA would shut it down. It would be horrible. Except it's called skiing, right? And the entire reason that people pay all that money to go skiing is the title of my last compilation, This Might Not Work. That... It might not be a beautiful day. It might be that the run doesn't work the way you want. It might be that you're binding ejects on the mogul. It might not work. And it's the fact that we're dancing right on that edge. That's what we're hooked up for. That's what we signed up for. It might not work. And so the act, why does, uh you know, Billy Joel make a classical album or whatever? Not because he wanted to sell more records, but because for that little project, it was like 30 years ago, it might not work, right? The critics might hate it. Here I am exposing myself again, getting another run down the, the hill. So you can point to those episodes that no one else can see you spackled in scene two, but you did. And you go, yeah, I did it. We didn't die, right? And it's because a while ago, I realized I was going to die. I think we're all going to die. Yeah. But to experience a moment where we can say to ourselves, wow, I didn't die. And I did something that was helpful at the same time. That's, for me, the game. The part, the getting paid money part, it seems to me that I've never found anyone who, in the internet era, who said, I produce something of value and people trust me and I'm having trouble making a living. I've never met anyone in that situation.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, all you have to do is watch Shane Carruth's movies, which are genre-bending. The, you know, uh, Upstream color is not in any genre that I recognize. The His first one, Primer, was makes them by himself, outside of the system, refuses to join. And he could be – any studio in the world would hire him, and he has enough people to go to his movies, and he has his world. He found his little sliver of the universe. That doesn't mean that he can go make his $100 million movie, because you'd have to make certain concessions to that. But he can make his five million movie, or you can make your $100,000 movie. So, okay, you just articulated the title. uh, You just explained the title of the last book. Explain the title of this book. I don't remember what I was doing when I said this phrase. What does it sound
1: like when you change your mind? The fact is we almost never change our mind. So in 1992, I said the internet, the World Wide Web was stupid, 93. World Wide Web was stupid. It's like prodigy, but it's slower. It's never going to work. And I took my internet company and headed it 100% toward email. That decision cost me a billion dollars. And nine months later, I looked again. I said I was wrong. I changed my mind and I'm sure there was either smoke over my head or people could hear that moment. When we go that feeling, if I do 350 blog posts a year and every time I do a blog post, a hundred people have that feeling. That's a good year's worth of work. What does it sound like
0: when you go, that's my goal? Yeah. It's an incredibly worthy goal. I mean, that is the, I mean, again, circling back to all this stuff, the reason it's worth grinding and making it a practice is if you grind and grind, if your friend Isaac Asimov would uh, grind, he knew that if he worked for five hours, Eddie Burns knows if he worked for those four hours, yep. somewhere in there, he can't promise it to himself, can't guarantee it, Right. but more days than not, somewhere in those four hours, he's skiing. There's a Somewhere it, right? in that, that time, he disappears. He transcends. He goes away to the place we go when we're at our creative peak. Exactly. That moment of being utterly connected to the best part of yourself.
1: That's right. And the fear never goes away. And if you try to make the fear go away, you have sacrificed everything. In fact, you look for the fear. The fear is a signal you're doing something right. And you dance with the fear. The resistance is not this thing to
0: be... Avoided. It's this thing to be sought out and dealt with. Awesome, Seth. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Well, episode four. That will all happen on episode uh, four that the two of us have. You know, I, the reason that you are <clears throat> uh, the most uh, the guest who's most frequently appeared on the show isn't only because uh, we've become dear friends, but it's because I get such incredible response from. Listeners who say that the that that you've really changed the way that they think about how they live in the world, and so if I can help bring you to them, it makes me feel like I'm doing a little piece of that, and wow. I can grab I can grab a little bit of the the credit because I'm a conduit, so thank you uh, thanks. Uh, you can find Seth Godin. you can't find him online. he doesn't check his Twitter. You can email him though, no, please. Email Tim Ferriss, not me. I get too many emails. You can email Seth. What Just you,
1: email him. Go ahead. If you hurry, you can get one of the last copies of the book at moreseth.com. But everything else about me is at
0: sethgoden.com. Moreseth.com gets you the big compendium book about changing your mind. Which is expensive and worth it. It is exp- I can tell you it's worth it. And um, I, I will say this. I have the last one. I don't have the in physical form the new one yet. But I have the last compendium, and uh, I have gone back to it. You know, I go back to it. I don't know. I, I go back to it a lot because – and I go back to I mean, that's the thing about Seth. I'm just going to say it. You know, people listen to the show know I'm not really out there pimping the, my guest's books. But Seth's books are incredibly valuable. I, I can't let you walk out without just saying – even though I'm at your house, so I'm walking out. <laughs> but I can't, like, let this end without saying I still think The Dip – is one of the most important books of the last 20 years uh because it no book I've read and it's short and quick and you should just go buy it The Dip is really the best guide I've ever found to when to quit and when to press through and why and so uh you know read the new book read The Dip email Seth like and if you don't hear back email him again right oh away like God. within the same you want to because look, he will write, you can guilt, he can be guilted into responding. But if you do want to email me, you can email me, themomentbk the at gmail.com. Themomentbk Can I tell gmail.com. you why I'm being so ungenerous
1: about email? It's my crutch. When I'm hiding, I'm answering email. Because at the end of the day, I can say, wow, I had a productive day today. I was busy the whole day. And then I say... Oh, yeah. All I did was answer 400 emails.
0: Right. So, yeah, Seth has no uh, online presence at all. But if you subscribe to his blog, you'll feel like you're in a real exchange with him. And you will be in a real exchange with him. And, um, you know, if he appears somewhere, go see him or stalk him. Wait, that's bad too. Don't (laughs) stalk him. You don't want your email address, man. And stalking is worse. I think that's maybe even worse. All right, Seth, thanks. Thank you, Brian. Bye.